In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. For this upcoming Sunday, we approach the fourth Sunday in Advent. So this is the last Sunday in the Advent cycle before we move into the season of Christmas, which also means we light the last of the purple candles in the Advent wreath and look forward to the completion of Advent with Christmas Eve. In doing this, uh, we now focus on the fulfillment of the prophecies about the coming of the Savior. So we began Advent with the promise that Christ is coming with the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem uh, with the Palm Sunday narrative. Then the last two Sundays focused on John the Baptist saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And now the fourth Sunday looks at the preparation in the sense that Christ has been made incarnate. And so some years, this will be the week that we hear the story of the Annunciation of the Magnificat. Uh, this year, because we are in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the, the Christmas story from Matthew. So it's the Christmas story told from Joseph's perspective. We hear uh, what Joseph encounters, the things he is thinking about as he grapples with the reality that he is about to become the earthly father of the Son of God. And Matthew's version of the Christmas story isn't one we necessarily hear every year because we tend to focus on Luke 2 because that's, that's the one that everybody recognizes. Right. Um, but if um, there's, what is it, there are three, three different sets of readings appointed for Christmas. Well, there's Christmas Eve, Christmas Midnight, and then Christmas Day. Correct. correct. And if you were to follow each of the sets of readings exactly the way they unfold, you would hear all three of the narratives. For our sake, we suppress the Matthew reading most of the time on Christmas Eve for the sake of hearing Luke at all of the Christmas Eve services. We will use the other readings uh, that come up at a variety of services, but you will hear Luke at every service on Christmas Eve instead of having Matthew be read at all. And the reasoning for that is because of the expectation of, of coming to the Christmas Eve service and because most people do not duplicate services, um, we want to make sure that the Luke story is the one that everybody gets a chance to hear. In times past, when people had the habit of attending more than one Christmas Eve service, it was important to have, or not necessarily important, but you had the opportunity to have both readings read over the course of the day uh, and hearing the reflection on each of them because each of them emphasizes something different. But instead, what we get as we look at Christmas Eve is Luke for Christmas Eve, whether it's the Eve or the midnight service, and then John for the Christmas Day service. And so we're able to see the, the humanity of Christ on Christmas Eve and the divinity of Christ on Christmas Day. You know, and that may, may have been part of the wisdom for appointing this particular reading for this fourth Sunday, because we, we were talking earlier in the week, week about why would they... Why would they put this for that? And maybe it's because they understand that from a practical standpoint, a lot of people aren't going to come to two services right. on Christmas Eve, and so they get to hear both Matthew and Luke. Right. Well, and even though it is the, the birth narrative from Matthew, 
it doesn't focus so much on the birth. It focuses on Joseph being told by the angel that Jesus is going to be born. It's focusing on the naming of Jesus. His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, and we do hear the second part of it as the epiphany reading because it's the account that gives us the wise men. And so when we hear about the wise men arriving, it's always out of Matthew. Forthcoming in, in epiphany. Now, right, yeah, but that comes will not be epiphany. heard this Sunday. Right, you will not hear that this Sunday because uh, that you wait for epiphany for. Um, which, by the way, uh, epiphany this year will be highlighted in a little bit differently or a different way because we have... Um, been given the addition of a wise man for our nativity that sits in front of the altar uh, for the Christmas season, and so a wise man will be making its appearance this year, um, and we're we're very grateful for that to be added. And has already made his appearance yes. on the cover of the uh, the card for the uh, right. service reminders that you should have received. Yes, yes. So he, uh, as I like to joke with the company, we ordered him from. Uh, because, of course, as with everything ordered in the last year, there was some shipping delays that we needed to get him here because he had a um, photo op that had been set in order to make sure that we could get our publishing done in time. Because we publish those Christmas cards that go out sometime in September or October is when they are put together and, and prepared on our side of things. But uh, when we look at this Sunday for Advent 4, we find ourselves at the beginning of Romans and hearing the introduction of that letter from Paul where he talks to the Romans about who he is and in doing so, he anchors himself to Christ. And in that anchoring, we get a beautiful depiction of what's happening uh, with the birth of Christ and well, actually for the sake of this Sunday, the incarnation of Christ and his joining of the his human and divine natures so why don't we read the entire section in one big chunk so we're in romans chapter one let's look at verses one through seven please and this this section serves as an introduction to paul's entire book of romans correct yeah, yeah this is this is his dear romans um, but it's not written that way as we've talked about with other letters the roman custom in starting a letter was different than what we have uh, and you can find a longer conversation about that elsewhere. Um, but this is that introductory material. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we've talked about with Paul before, this is one really long sentence in Greek in which Paul continues to narrow in on his main point, which is, who is Paul? We take for granted that everybody knows who Paul is. When he writes this letter to the Romans, he's not yet been to Rome. So there's certainly people in Rome who've met him, people in Rome who know who he is, but by and large, the Roman congregation would not have met Paul, and therefore, 
he needs to take time to introduce himself and give himself standing in front of the congregation to be able to write the letter that follows. So to do that, he has to establish himself both as one who has authority to speak on behalf of God, but who is also a, a companion, a brother, a fellow Christian with the Roman citizens, or the, the Roman church, not the Roman citizens. And we'll talk about that distinction in just a moment as well. So at the time of the writing, he gives this long depiction of himself in order to tell the, the church in Rome this is who I am. So let's take a moment and break down who does Paul say that he is. He gives us first three depictions of who he is. The first is the servant of Jesus Christ. Now, we should note that a slave is probably a more accurate depiction. Uh, the word that he does use there, Paul was saying beforehand, he likes a little Greek sprinkled in every now and again, so I'll give him one, uh, is doulos, which is more accurately translated as slave as opposed to servant. The reason it would be switched to servant is because in our American context, when we hear the word slave, we think about American slavery, which is very different than Roman slavery. Roman slavery is probably more closely aligned with what we would have recognized as indentured servitude as opposed to slavery or modern-day servant. Um, the Roman slave certainly was not free because they were owned by their master, but it wasn't the entire family. It didn't mean your kids were automatically enrolled into slavery. You tended to be very highly educated, sometimes more highly educated than the, the, your master, um, but you didn't have the ability to just go and do whatever you want or, or make your own money. You, were a part of the household of the person who owned you. And so indentured servant is probably a better idea. Well, because it, it carries with it the idea of it's, it's a distinction in economic status, but also um, social status. Right, right, yeah. It does distinguish you in both of those terms. Um, and, but it would not be uncommon for people to sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts, things of that nature. So, and that's not something you would have encountered in American slavery. No, but in, in, in that system, it would have, it, it could have meant a lot of security for someone. Right, absolutely, because you were now a dependent in that household. And so the person who was responsible for you had a responsibility to care for you and your family, um, even if that family was not part of their household as well as, as an indentured servant. So Paul begins by saying he's a slave of Jesus Christ. And this is also important because most of the congregants in Rome would have been slaves. They were these servants of Roman citizens. And so by saying that he is a slave to Jesus Christ, he's trying to put himself on a level playing field with the other members of the congregation. Because Paul is certainly not a slave to a Roman citizen. He himself is a Roman citizen, which could have put him at a disadvantage in socially trying to talk to the people of the Roman congregation. Why would I want to talk to another person who's just like the person who uh, is my boss or my owner? Um, but by saying he's a slave to Jesus Christ, he is now able to give them a depiction of the relationship that he has with God. And, and coming back to the idea that you mentioned before, that it's not necessarily a reflection on your 
on your training or education because mm -hmm. you could be a very well-educated person, still be a slave. And Paul was very well-educated. Very well-educated, yes. And as I said, it was to your owner's benefit that you were well-educated because that's how they made the money. You were, you ran their businesses in a lot of cases. He then goes on uh, to identify himself as an apostle, which means that that is somebody who's sent. Uh, so when we think about the apostles, we tend to think about the disciples plus Paul. Um, but when we look at the word apostle, it can mean a variety of different things. There's some there's some gray area around the edges as to who's included in the apostleship when we look at apostle in more of a generic term. But when we think about the formal title of apostles, even today, we tend to limit it to the disciples plus Paul. And so he's acknowledging that he is one sent by Christ who has been set apart for the gospel of God. So this is what he has carved out to do. It's gospel preaching. It's to share the good news of Jesus. Um, I had a professor when I was in seminary who liked to say that uh, pastors should have, um, like Superman always had his outfit, his superhero costume underneath of his uh, suit and attire. He always said that uh, pastors should have a shirt underneath that has a big G on it because they're the gospel guys. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Um, pastors are set apart carved out for doing one thing, being the gospel guy, bringing the gospel into the world. And so when I hear this uh, phrase that Paul has set, is set apart for the gospel of God, that's what I picture is that underneath of his uh, toga or whatever he's wearing, he's got a superhero costume with a big G on it that says he's the gospel guy uh, showing up to give the word of God to the people of God. Well, it's, it's his identity. It's his vocation. Right. He can't be separated from it. I mean, Sure, he had some skills outside of that as a tent maker and whatnot, right. but this, this is your, your purpose in life. Right. This is his whole purpose in life. So when we start to read this long introduction of who he is, Paul starts by giving us the three quantifiers or qualifiers of his name. He's Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. But now he feels the need to qualify the word gospel. So if we were diagramming this, you now get another bracket down to get a subunit of this sentence. And we need to ask the question of what is the gospel for which he's been set apart? It's the gospel promised beforehand by the prophets of the Holy Scriptures. So it is the one that grows out of the Old Testament uh, or the only Testament because the New Testament has is in the process of being written. Right, and they, writing this. and they would have been familiar with the Old Testament writings, so that gives them that standing. That, right. Look, it's testified to, yeah. because you already know this. Right, and it's not a gospel that you haven't heard. I'm not creating something new. I'm speaking in continuity with the prophets who've come before me. So it's the gospel spoken by the prophets, the next qualifier is that it's about Jesus concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. So it's about Jesus who's a man descended from David and declared to be the son of God in the power according to the Holy Spirit by holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So it is about Jesus who is both man and God descended from David and the son of God according to the spirit 
proved by the resurrection of the dead. This is why this text is chosen as the apostle for, or as the epistle for Sunday, is because it shows us the incarnation, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Paul is making the argument that he is proclaiming the gospel about the Son of God who descended from David. So he's human, but also declared to be the Son of God according to the Holy Spirit. He's both at the same time. And so he's giving us this depiction of Jesus in this um, incarnation moment and then further qualifies it as the gospel that delivers grace that brings about the obedient of faith for the sake of all nations and for the Romans themselves. So the gospel is spoken by the prophets. It is about Jesus, and it is for the sake of giving grace to the entire world. And Paul argues here specifically for the people of Rome who belong to Jesus. And because of this, he is tied to the Romans because they are both loved by God and called to be his saints. And so he brings it all the way back to where he started with that word servant, that word slave of Jesus Christ. He gives us all of these qualifiers about his name, about the gospel, about who Jesus is, all to get back to saying, and by the way, because of this, look, we're the, still in the same camp. What, what do we know about the Romans that he was addressing here, about, the, about these uh, Christian Romans? Did they have some fairly common heresies that were circulating? Like some of them perhaps were, were doubting the divinity of Christ or misunderstanding Christ. Um, um, and that's why he had to spell out this very specifically, that, that he was born of the Spirit. I, I don't remember which specific false teachings Paul is going to go after in Romans. Um, when we think about Romans, it's, it's the cornerstone, it's one of the cornerstone books of the New Testament. And it's addressing the concerns that the Romans are facing. Do they have a heresy that denies this, the two natures of Christ? I'm not certain that that is one of the things that comes up. I'm I'm racking my brain right now, kind but, of. But it was a common enough heresy. There probably were some people that, were still grappling with it, right? Because that's what that's what necessitated the creeds, right? Later on, is is because this was such a common heresy, right? But I think that it it doesn't fully get articulated until a little bit later. Um, it it comes in. Normally, the bigger issue is the separation of the soul and the spirit. Is one of the earlier heresies that have to be addressed. And Romans, part of what makes Romans so powerful is that it does spend a lot of time arguing for the value of creation, the value of your body. All of creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of man. Um, and so I think the bigger thing that Paul's going to be addressing here is that the Christian church is a physical experience, not just a spiritual one, um, which probably would lend itself to the need to make sure that you are proclaiming that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of the Virgin Mary. So, but to your specific question, I, I can't say 100% either, either way for certain. Okay. So, <laughs> um, that was not a question that crossed my mind to look up. <laughs> That's what 
it makes part of this fun is <laughs> we don't talk to each other about this until we sit down to talk about it live. Um, so then he brings it all back together in saying, in the same way that we have this shared reality as being a slave, we are still all belonging to Jesus Christ. And all of this is used to define who Paul is and why he is able to speak. Because remember, a Roman letter starts with the person who sent it, not the person receiving. So he says all of that about himself so that he can then tell us to whom he is sending the letter. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we know he's sending it to Rome and he's telling the Roman citizens, I'm all of these things, but this is who you are. You are loved by God, called to be his saints or his holy ones. And so I offer to you grace and peace from God and our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that I thought was striking is when I was reading about this introduction, somebody said that this introduction can be compared to a stream in which a child may wade, but it is so deep that an elephant must swim. And I think we just, we've kind of experienced that. You can read through this and, and understand what Paul is saying at a very high level very quickly. It's a stream that is safe enough for a child to wade into. The moment you start to dig, it becomes a river so deep that an elephant would need to swim because we can spend hours digging into the particulars of what it means to say that he's declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, or that he was descended from David according to the flesh. We have all of these things that we can spend so much time digging into that we end up with a very deep and rich theological text, but it's also one that anybody can get a hold of and understand what Paul is talking about. I've never heard it expressed that way. I, have you run across that kind of phrasing for this before? Um, I've not. This was a new one for the introduction, but I've heard that phrase used before. Okay, I, I, I'll admit that I haven't. But but what it it brought to mind was the just the idea of having a childlike faith. That when you think about the complexities of theology that have just been uh, uh, developed over time, you think, why would we want to? try to introduce this to children, yet we do. There's something so approachable and fundamental mm -hmm. about the faith that children grasp it pretty readily, right. uh, which is, I think, is what he's getting after right. here. But yet, but yet it's so profound and deep, you can spend your whole life trying to digest the complexities of it. And it's remarkable how many people, um, I think, share with you that even as they grow older, it's like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Right, and it really is an amazing aspect of the Christian faith and of Christian theology. Uh, the example I use as my own personal revelation of this is Psalm 23. I'll be honest, for a long time, I dismissed Psalm 23 as very, almost a very light sort of a thing. It, it, for me, it didn't have, it didn't resonate with depth of meaning. However, after saying the Psalm 23 at roughly 100 funerals now of people that I know, all of a sudden that Psalm, I can sit and contemplate it for hours. And it is filled with so much depth and meaning because it's changed. 
we can teach it to our kids. I've taught it to my own kids uh, through two different hymns. And it's easy for them to approach and understand. And I do it because I know that it's something that grows with them over the course of their lifetime that they will never grow out of. And I think there's a lot of text that way. And when we think about the, the beauty of the Christian faith, is that is exactly what's happening there. It is something we can teach to our children, but it is something that they will never outgrow. Welcome to this second half of the podcast. Because of some technical difficulties we had this week, Pastor has left this part of the podcast, so I will just speak about the hymn for this coming Sunday on my own. And it's a very familiar one. It's uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So if you have a Lutheran service book, it's number 357. And uh, what's so great about this hymn is that it it's kind of its own uh, miniature advent calendar that leads right up to Christmas. Uh, you may have wondered why we haven't sung it in worship yet. It was designed to be sung for uh, the Vesper service for the week leading up to Christmas Eve. So in other words, the seven days that lead up to it. And if you look at the hymn, it is constructed of seven stanzas, one for each of those days. So it can trace its origins all the way back to um, the uh, uh, eighth century. And what they were were meditations on Old Testament names for Christ. So, for example, O Root of Jesse, O Wisdom, O Key of David, these are all references to Christ that were found in Old Testament prophecies. And so these were turned into an antiphon uh, that, were, that was added to uh, evening prayer or vespers for that week leading up to Christmas Eve. And what happened over time is, is that uh, uh, these, these texts were discovered and eventually paired with a melody, but not until the 18th century. And the person that did that was John Mason Neal. And we have him to thank for rescuing a lot of old, uh, beautiful old texts from Greek and Latin and translating them into English for our use. And so what happened is, is he came upon these O antiphons. And by the way, if you have the hymnal there, you'll, you'll appreciate that along with the hymn, the the um, editors of the hymnal thought it was a great idea to also include the great, the um, original great O antiphons so that you can see them there on the facing page. And um, there's one designated for each day leading up to Christmas Eve. And so uh, what happened there is John Mason Neal, who was a, a, um, a, a priest in the Church of England, and... Um, uh, also a very, very gifted linguist. He spoke at least 20 languages. And so we have uh, to thank him for uh, being so skilled in languages to be able to pull these out of those original languages and make them poetically beautiful and put them into English. And what he did was he found a, a plain chant in another source, in an old French source that had nothing to do with the season of Advent or Christmas. In fact, it was a, um, a piece of music that was a trope or an insertion into a chant used at funerals. But he thought it was so beautiful that it needed to um, have a higher profile 
And he thought, well, what better way to give it a higher profile than to match it with these O antiphons that really needed to be better known uh, as well. And when they were first published, there were only five of these O antiphons uh, that were crafted into five stanzas. And the, uh, the last two stanzas were added in the Episcopal hymnal, hymnal of 1940s to bring us to a total of seven. And that also helps to explain why there's uh, a smaller number of stanzas in the old TLH, the Lutheran hymnal. If you grew up with that hymnal like I did, there were only four stanzas for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I often wondered why there were only four, and now we have seven, and, and they all nicely pair up with these uh, O antiphons. And um, it's because Neil just did not, did not write uh, for all seven of the O antiphons. What's also very um, uh, interesting about this hymn is, is that it's placed in the, at the very end of the Advent section, rightfully so, because if we're supposed to sing it that last week before uh, Christmas Eve, that's where you'd like it. And then the, the, uh, right across from it, the first hymn in the Christmas section happens to be Luther's great Christmas hymn, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. And so if you look at the, um, the original O antiphons that we have appointed for each of the days, you'll see that they are, uh, they name one of these names from the Old Testament for Jesus, and then it, it follows with a petition. If we take, for example, um, the one for uh, December 21st, O day spring, splendor of light everlasting, come and enlighten those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The name is first, and then the petition is second. Those get inverted in the hymn, and that, uh, that inversion happens in stanza six. O come thou day spring from on high, and cheers by thy, thy drawing nigh. There's the petition. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Uh, the petition continues, and then rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So we have the... Um, the petition coming first. I should also point out that, uh, that um, Neil, his other contributions, um, there are at least 200 hymns that he translated from the Greek and Latin. And in our hymnal, there are over um, uh, 18 examples of hymns that have his uh, touch on it, either as a translation or arrangement of, of some type. So uh, these very old but very beautiful texts uh, were uh, rescued from uh, obscurity by him and, and um, have endured these many centuries and have found their way into our worship. Interestingly, uh, I associate O Come, O Come, Emmanuel most definitely with the Advent season, but I came across a poll recently of people um, of what their favorite Christmas hymns were. And this rose to the top of the list of favorite Christmas hymns. Uh, so it definitely blurs the line there between Christmas and Advent. We'll be singing this entire hymn this coming Sunday um, at the beginning of the service. And I think it would make a great devotional practice if during the week and you have the hymnal there, uh, uh, you could take the time to uh, ponder the different O antiphons, 
for each day that they are appointed and the verses that correspond with them. I should note that the verses, the order of the verses and the order of the antiphons don't necessarily agree with one another. In fact, um, the last one is, O Emmanuel, our King and Lord. We uh, actually have that as the first stanza of the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So things are kind of turned around in order a little bit in terms of the verses versus the, the O antiphons. So um, again, I encourage you to use that as a devotion during your, during your uh, preparation for this, this last week of Advent. And we'll close with the Collect for the Word as we typically do with our uh, uh, podcast. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.